You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And we are very excited to have a guest with us today, Dr. Gregory Pence. And he's with us because he's written a book about orphan black and bioethics. And it's called What We Talk About When We Talk About Clone Club, Bioethics and Philosophy in Orphan Black. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Pence. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're going to go ahead and issue a blanket spoiler statement. So anything up through season three is fair game. Yes. Yes. And so Dr. Pence is an expert on the ethics of human cloning and a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Could you possibly tell us more about your credentials? How does one get to be an expert on the ethics of human cloning? Well, that's a good question. So I've been teaching bioethics for about, wow, 40 years, and I lived through the brouhaha about in vitro fertilization, so-called test tube babies in the 1975. And in 1997, when Dolly was cloned, it was an explosion in bioethics and people were just sort of went ballistic. And it very much reminded me of the same kind of explosion that occurred with the first test tube baby, Louise Brown. So I wrote a book basically suggesting that the sky wouldn't fall some human ever got originated by cloning. And that led to some other things like testifying before Congress when Congress basically wanted to make it a federal crime to not only originate a baby by cloning, but even an embryo, like for stem cells. So for a couple of years, it was a very, very controversial topic and uh, probably the hottest topic ever in bioethics. In other words, if you were in bioethics, you just couldn't avoid talking about it and thinking about it. And uh, the the easy thing to do is just to sort of non-thinkingly condemn it. But I, I came out on the other side. So you've written a couple of books about cloning previously. And we noticed that in your acknowledgments, you thank your wife for suggesting this project to you. So could you tell us a little bit more about how the book came about? Like, why did you decide to look at cloning through the lens of Orphan Black? Oh, yes, it, my wife's a clinical psychologist, and she had written a book or contributed to a book on Harry Potter. And uh, several people actually suggested that I watch Orphan Black because of cloning. And uh, at first, I was, you know, I'm a philosopher and an academic, you know, and even though I like things like Game of Thrones, I think of it more as an escape than as an academic, you know, exercise. But when I actually watched the show... I realized that the creators were really trying to get the science right. And for the first time, and this is really kind of remarkable, it showed people originated by cloning as normal people for the most part. And if you look at most movies and literatures, that is not true. I mean, almost uniformly, people originated by cloning are like zombies or deformed or commodities there's something wrong with them. And that was very refreshing about Orphan Black, that it really tried to explore them as people. And the second thing was that by having multiples, you can explore the nature-nurture question. You know, how, how, is, how is Helena different having been raised by mean nuns in the Ukraine versus Allison as a kind of soccer mom? And that, that's a kind of fascinating way to kind of counter a lot of the stereotypes about cloning. So it really sucked me in. Which actually kind of answers some other questions we had, because I was going to ask if you were already a fan of the show by the time you decided to 
maybe pursue this as as a, a academic book to write. I was a fan of the show, and uh, there's the, the only thing that kept me back is there's so many shows to watch. <laughs> that, this is uh, true. You can almost spend all your life watching shows, and you know some of us have to actually teach students and go to class. The other thing is that I teach a lot of really smart kids who are 18, 19, and um, I thought a lot of them were into the show. And there's an old thing by the famous philosopher John Dewey that if you want to reach people, you have to start where they're interested, not where you're interested. And this was a very good way of introducing some fairly complicated topics in biology and bioethics to a much broader audience. So one of my colleagues is also is teaching a course in philosophy and superheroes, and another one is teaching a course in philosophy and film. So we're trying to meet you know, 18, 19-year-olds where they are, and it's working pretty well. Neat. I will say I do feel like Orphan Black has generated quite an interest in the science behind it, at least amongst the fandom that I interact with. I know a lot of people who have gotten into looking at epigenetics and other aspects of, of human cloning, as well as CRISPR and, and other things like that because of Orphan Black. Right, and SynBio, and what, what can be patented and what can't be, and what's a chimera. All that's pretty interesting stuff. And uh, one of the amazing things to me is that we have a lot of pre-meds at UAB where I teach, and most biology courses don't really talk about that kind of stuff. They consider it kind of fluffy, especially if they're like, uh, uh, you know, into recombinant DNA and really heavy biology stuff. But to me, uh, that kind of stuff is the most interesting part about biology. So kind of the door was open for someone to talk about it. That's actually one of the things I really liked about the book was that it covers a wide variety of topics that are brought up in the show. The other thing that came up was really kind of an ambush for me. I, I have taught several sets of twins over the decades, and I think I succumb to the uh, what's called the twin mystique or the twindom mystique. That uh, isn't it just lovely to have two identical twins and to dress them the same and to have you know take them out to the ball game together? And it never occurred to me how sick that could be, and how that. If you raise kids that way, it can be very difficult for one of them to separate. And that was really kind of an interesting insight into what might be going on if you had six or seven cestras, as Selena says. And um, it's kind of a, a fascinating insight into the whole world of twins. So going back to something that you mentioned earlier, I, I was just wondering, is it difficult for you to watch science fiction TV or movies about cloning? It depends on the movie. If it's uh, the other other night, they had uh, the Sixth Day on, which was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, and um, they have a memory implant that they suddenly it's like a chip they put into his brain. It gives him back all his old memories. Uh, that's difficult to watch because it's not scientific. You know, there's a, there's a popular myth. It was also in the movie Alien Resurrection that if you recreate the genotype, you you recreate the person and all their you know, the, their characteristics and their memories, that's difficult to watch. So I would say like 90% of shows about cloning get it wrong. So they're, they're just kind of obnoxious. That, so Orphan Black is really different for the most part in, in that way. 
I think it's really, really tried to get get things right. I mean, I, I don't think it's an accident, as I say in the book, that Casino is at the University of Minnesota, where they ha- is a center for uh, studying twins, and uh, they have so much data about identical twins over time. I had forgotten about that. That's right. <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly, that's actually where Casima Herter teaches. Yes. Mm. Yes, it is. That's true. I mean, you can almost imagine in a future show that they show up at the uh, annual Twins Festival in Twinsburg, Ohio, and see what happens, (laughs) which would be an interesting place to do a podcast from. (laughs) So you've mentioned that you feel like Orphan Black is really trying to get the science right and and does a pretty good job of it. Are there any things in particular that you feel like maybe they're not doing quite right and could do a little bit righter? (laughs) Like, I don't know, something I, it was maybe just an impression that I had when I was reading your book is is you maybe find the portrayal of the danger of like scientists gone mad with cloning to be maybe a little tiresome or, or maybe a little improbable. That's if you if you try to find an image in the in the media in films of a, a normal scientist or a good scientist, it's very hard. You know, it's typically it's like a Jurassic Park where he's sort of well-intentioned, but then the clone dinosaurs, you know, you know, go go crazy. And, of course, he has to die in the end because the arrogant scientist has to be brought down. That's that's our trope. So, so that's a little irritating. But the other part, I mean, I guess for drama, you almost have to have that. I don't object to that so much. The parts where they've take some, taken some liberties – you know, like of Olivier's tail, and whatever mm. that thing is was in the uh, in, in the, the mouth. mouth of that guy. Yeah. And also with the casters at the at the end of season three, things got very very weird scientifically about what they were doing and what they were all about. So I, I think they kind of lost it a little bit at the end of season three. Are you talking about the suggested like sterilization project they were working on? I'm talking about what was yes, what what they were supposedly spreading, you know, sexually and why that was important to study and why how the project from the casters had had turned from something supposedly, you know, to something else and um it it just didn't seem to make sense at a certain point. Fair enough. I assume we're going to learn more about it in the upcoming season, but yeah. I, it's hard to know whether, you know, <laughs> I made, it is. I made some guesses at the end. I mean, I think, uh, it would be wonderful if, um, you know, Rachel could redeem herself, uh, somehow by sacrificing, you know, maybe an organ, maybe her, in her life to save another, you know, one of her sisters. I think that would be a very nice outcome for season four, but we'll see. We'll see. Maybe something will happen. We totally, no, none of us thought of. And there's certainly a lot of material to work with. I mean, there could be a whole new set of clones that come in. And because uh, why not? You know? <laughs> yeah, you're referencing some things that you mentioned in the last chapter of your book where you talk about some ideas for future Orphan Black episodes. And I, and my favorite one, I have to say, is is where you suggest meeting like a new, completely new group of clones that have been raised in a just very different type of society, like maybe somewhere in China with a completely different type of 
government, different values, etc. And and I, I really like that idea, though, at the same time, I think like, oh, tear, that's not going to be played by Tatiana Maslany. Uh, but um, I was wondering if you had any other that were just like your favorite ideas out of that list of five that you gave us for potential Orphan Black episode ideas. Well, certainly the idea that there would be a group of non-self-aware clones that maybe were being potentially used as commodities that had to be rescued. I think that's a kind of a fascinating idea. It kind of makes, would make the leaders, maybe they could even join the casters and become a kind of Mission Impossible, you know, SEAL team that goes in and rescues these, you know, poor human beings that were being exploited. And Clone that, Defense Force. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's exciting. And it would be... Um, it would be something good to say, you know, usually you get people bond when they have a common goal and a, a common enemy. So I think that would be very exciting. Another thing I think would be really interesting is that it seems like, well, there's already some of the leaders and casters have committed things that are probably crimes uh, is to have somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know, we know. Uh, Murder. Yeah. <laughs> we know Sarah. Yeah. So, but it would be interesting to have a trial and try to prove which one did it, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, of course, it would be very, very hard to do that. And so that could in- introduce a lot of drama. And people, of course, could swap identities and, you know, different times on the stand. And that, that would be an exciting plot twist to follow. Especially with Allison getting involved in the drug world in season three, she could maybe use a strong clone defense <laughs> coming up soon. Yeah, I mean, you know, somebody could have seen her at the drugstore on Monday morning, but she has like, she's talking to a judge on the other side of town at the same time. <laughs> it says, how could I be in two places at the same time? Obviously, it can't be. And so she has a pretty airtight defense. This has actually happened before with identical twins, where there was a famous case in China and uh, Malaysia where they couldn't prove which twin did it, and so they got off. Hmm. That reminds me of an episode of Law & Order SVU. I saw that episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also wanted to to ask you, this is maybe more of a technical question, which I'm, I don't know if you can answer it, but I thought I'd give it a shot. But you mentioned a potential good storyline for Rachel, maybe being she redeems herself by, you know, volunteering for some sort of transplant, maybe to save another clone or, you know, yep. sacrificing her life in some way. And, and I know a lot of us who've been watching the show We've been wondering why Cosima, who clearly is is pretty ill at this point with her autoimmune disease, why she's turned just to Kira for like gene therapy for a treatment. It couldn't Sarah or Helena or even like Allison maybe provide some bone marrow to her? Sure. I think that well, that's where a little bit where epigenetics comes in. I I'm not sure well, first of all, bone marrow is gonna be a stopgap measure. And one of the things about Kira's stem cells is they they seem to be not just ordinary stem cells, but sort of right. semi-miraculous stem cells, uh, very pluripotent. And, and that's, that's, that's fine. You know, that's completely within the war, world of uh, possibility. That was one of the things, you know, when Kira gets hit by the car and so immediately recovers, that's, you know, not medically possible normally. So... That's indicating some kind of really extraordinary powers in, in her in her body and her cells. So just going with that in the show would mean that, you know, Kira's stem cells are much better 
or Cosimo than anybody else's. So I, I'm willing to give the show that. I mean, that's it. Also makes Kira, you know, just so incredibly valuable financially mm-hmm. because if they can do it for Cosimo, they can probably do it for a lot of other people. And so, I mean, you can imagine a, a vial of those stem cells, you know, be worth you know twenty, fifty million dollars. So then a lot of big players get involved. You know, it's kind of a fountain of youth. But I'm not wrong in thinking that if they just need like a stopgap type of treatment that Sarah or Helena or one of the other Lita clones could donate some bone marrow and that would be helpful at least temporarily. Right. Uh, They're they're going to be mainly adult stem cells as opposed to – so they tend to be more differentiated and not – so it it depends on exactly what's wrong with Cosima. If there's – you know, one of the shows indicated that her problem was – also in her lungs. So I, I don't know. Yes, the answer is yes to your question. But I, obviously they're looking for a long-term cure, not just. Right. So, you know, they're, they're, they've kind of pushed that to the limits. Uh, the same thing with patenting things. That's that's a little off too, the whole idea of patenting. Because when you uh, patent something, you have to file and it has to be Anyone can go look at it, and it's, it's very hard to believe the Dyad Corporation or anybody else would have actually allowed anybody else to look at what they were doing. I was actually thinking about that as I was reading that chapter. It's like, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, the patent office, like, did did that not raise any eyebrows somehow? <laughs> I guess I was thinking that it wasn't so much that Dyad had filed the patent yet, but they made it so that it was possible. Like, it was kind of a... a uh, you know, just to make sure here, we're going to put this in the synthetic DNA too, but not necessarily that they had filed the patent quite yet. Because yeah, yeah, you're right. Like if they're trying to be all secret, that's not a good way to go. <laughs> yeah. It's also true that uh, my, my dad was a, a trademark and patent examiner for the federal government that uh, just thought I'd slip that in. Because <laughs> most people aren't <laughs> as interested in patents as I am. But uh, I mean, CRISPR is a good example, which is CRISPR is a kind of a revolutionary technique for editing genes that everybody's really excited about. And one of the things companies do, universities do, they file patents for every conceivable part of it, you know, a process, a result, anybody, just to kind of cover the whole ground. Even if they don't know what something does, they'll file a patent. And so that makes a little sense that there could be lots of patents filed, even granted, and people really wouldn't know what what the patents did. Theoretically, they're not supposed to be granted if you don't know what the patent does, but in reality, it happens all the time. So, for example, people are filing patents on genes and bits of genes, which they don't really know what the genes do, right? Right. But for a while, the patent office was allowing it. So that's that's kind of weird, but that's where we are. Now... They get the job that my dad, my dad had a law degree. You need a law degree and a PhD in like microbiology or biochemistry. It's that competitive and technical. Hmm. Yeah, speaking of the of DNA patenting, I thought that chapter was was really very interesting. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about the possible implications of that patent language that they found in the, the synthetic DNA sequence. Well, it, it, I mean, it really gets into the bioethics because – you can patent animals. That's one of the things that's really been pushing the cloning of animals. For example, in Cuba, 
they uh, had this extraordinary dairy cow who produced like, I don't know, 60 times more milk and good milk than the normal cow. And so they, they you know, they, they bred the cow by cloning and somebody in the United States wanted to file a patent or a similar cow and was, was allowed to. And so, and people also have filed patents on pigs that might be xenotransplants for human organs. And that's been allowed for all kinds of non-human animals, mammals. And even some kind of like valves for humans have been allowed to be patented. But when you get to the human patenting, the patent office has drawn a line. Even though there's nothing in the law about patents that says a human can't be human DNA can't be patented, they just don't know what to do with it. And certainly, people have a lot of religious and object, ethical objections to patenting human DNA. So, one of the weird things is that you supposedly you can't patent something that's naturally occurring in nature, and uh, human DNA would seem to be, in one sense, naturally occurring. On the other hand, no one has ever been cloned from a, a previous genotype. So the delayed twin there is not naturally occurring. So it would be the one hell of a patent decision that would have to be made about that. That was actually really interesting, the part about delayed twins, because I had never actually heard of delayed twins before. Well, I actually, I mean, the language here is really, really important, I think. Even I had to be careful I mean, if you talk about an army of escaping clones, that's pretty negative. Uh, just like if you say the chicks want equal rights. So it's a mouthful, but you know, saying a person originated by cloning is probably the most correct way to go. So like in bioethics, rather than talk about schizophrenics, we like to have medical students talk about people with schizophrenia, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... And in the same way, it, it's important, to, I think, to keep the, uh, the the persons involved with whatever you're you're talking about, whether it's patenting or. Uh, now I'm losing my your question. <laughs> <laughs> Delayed twins. <laughs> yes. Okay. So yes, I think the easiest way to think about a person originated by cloning is as a delay twin of the previous, you know, genotype, and this has actually happened already in assisted reproduction. There was a clinic in Atlanta where they used IVF and the two embryos were created who were identical and one was implanted and became a baby and then they didn't implant the other one until like eight years later. And so that one worked too. And so it's very strange, you know. So one boy came out and eight years later his twin came out. And that's kind of the way I think of cloning. You know, so if someone clones LeBron James, little LeBron's twin will come out, you know, as a new kid. It won't be LeBron James, of course, but it'll be a twin genetically. Still, it just amazed me that there's been a a delayed twin that is actually, you know, that it's a thing that actually happened. You know, reality is uh, stranger sometimes than fiction. It's kind of like the... uh, the case of the um, the chimera, where Kendall Malone is a is a chimera, and so in writing this book, I had my own little clone club, bunch of people who were really interested in the show, mainly medical students, reference librarians, and when we were researching chimeras, I didn't know that there had actually been a famous case uh, of this, and that uh, 
it, it had been, you know, a major trial and a major screw up. So that, that's all kind of interesting. Yeah, we actually talked about that on the podcast when that episode came out, because I think we'd gotten questions from people too, like, is that a real thing? Yes, it's a real thing. <laughs> and that, yeah, it's bizarre sounding, but it's absolutely a real thing. <laughs> well, yeah, not only a real thing, but people's lives can get messed up like Lydia Fairchild's when people just deny that it can happen. Yep. I mean, Lydia Fairchild was really put to hell uh, because of it. And it's actually amazing that a lawyer on the other side helped them resolve the dilemma. Kind of makes me feel good that some lawyers are that, you know, actually good and helped out. <laughs> Do you remember that, that case of Lydia Fairchild? Oh, I don't remember when it happened, but when the episode came out, I think somebody... Somebody attached to the show, I'm pretty sure, had posted about it or something. Because we did hear about it then. Do you remember, Stephanie? I do, yeah. Right, because they were saying, they were basically accusing her of welfare fraud. and saying these weren't her ch children because they didn't match her DNA. And that they didn't come out of her. And the obst obstetrician was testifying saying, oh, yes, they did come out of her. I was there. I, you know, they dropped right on me. And, uh, but that, it was just a really interesting mystery them to solve and no one ever you know thought that she was a chimera so that was really interesting it's kind of like there's i don't know if you picked this up in the book but there's something called a ghost twin that many more people have than you know we realize right, and right. usually the ghost twin doesn't make it but uh, it's kind of an eerie idea that uh, you know you had a twin at some point in utero uh, that didn't make it there's a lot of Strange things. Uh, when I was teaching in the medical school, I used to do a dog and pony show with an endocrinology professor uh, and also a surgeon who basically, he, all the cases of sexual anomalies at birth, especially with anomalous genitalia and babies, he corrects them. And uh, I had no idea that about 1% of babies had some kind of uh, genital anomaly at birth. And uh, you know, there's lots of weird things in medicine that uh, get kind of covered up. And this is um, kind of relates to stuff in the show about the, the shame and the secrecy because most parents are very uncomfortable if a child is like an hermaphrodite because, you know, it's like a, it's like a social emergency. The child has to go home as a boy or a girl, you know. He can't go home purple. So... What happens is that the parents and the surgeon make a decision about what's, what, what sex that child's going to be, even if it's ambiguous. And then there's a cover-up, and the child is never told. And what happens is, we found out you know, in medical school, and this is why it's such a big issue in bioethics, what happens is sometimes they, they guess wrong. And so you find a teenage girl who just hates her body, you know, she starts cutting on herself as her hormones develop. And really the reason she hates her body is that she's not a girl, biologically. But there's a lot of shame and a lot of cover-up about this. Uh, kind of like, you know, if you were originally a child by cloning, you can imagine the same thing. Or, if, you know, if someone is, is trans or intersex, they're going to feel like really different. So this is a, is, a, is a fascinating medical area. And there's a lot of bioethics issues in it, and it's more common than people realize. And the reason they don't know is the, is the cover-up and the secrecy and the shame that's around the issues. 
That is one of the things I like most about Orphan Black is how much it focuses on identity. I agree. And also how I guess the the trickiest and most delicate part of the book was the chapter on sexuality, where which as we know, I mean almost everything every fact about sexual development is is contentious and politically charged. And so you have to be really, really careful uh, what you say. But it's probably true that, you know, really tiny differences very early on, you know, both, you know, in terms of hormones, but also in terms of what the mother eats, what the mother drinks, make huge differences later on. And, uh, I mean, we're not even talking about Freudian stuff or behavioral stuff about how the child is raised, but just chemically, uh, very small differences can make huge difference, even in sexual orientation and presentation. So that's, like I say, that, that's, that's really, you have to sort of, when you're writing, you feel like you're, you're writing around minefields to write, write about all that. So that actually leads into another question I had, because you talk about gene activation and genetic imprinting and epigenetics and all the things that can vary between clones. So I was wondering if you thought the variation we see among the clones, do you think that's about what you'd expect? Or did you think they've got even more room for variation if they introduce new clones in the future? I think the Cespers, the leaders, uh, it's, it's done very well. Uh, the casters, I, maybe they're deliberately going the other way. I mean, this, in the literature, you know, there's a stereotype about especially military clones being all re, you know raised together and sort of, and the casters kind of fall prey to that stereotype. But the leaders are much, it's much better for they show, you know, how individual they can be. I think they've done an excellent job with the leaders, uh, shockingly so. And as I say in the book, I think it's just an acting tour de force that Tatiana Maslany can can make you believe that you're watching different people, and uh, and yet at the same time there's something in common to all of them, which is a real acting challenge, I think. Yeah, I believe the uh, producers and the writers have talked about intentionally making the caster clones more similar because they were all raised together. But I think there's also maybe a limitation in, you know, caster clone played by a male actor. You can't do as much with like male wigs. They just don't look as good. <laughs> so I like that you mentioned in the book that the Lita clones are different and like their hair texture. And we have Cosima who wears glasses. And yeah, I, I do really like the variation that they've managed to inject into the Lita clones. I, well, I think with the right actor and the right, you could do more uh, with the males, but it, is, there's that military, you know, combat thing that's going on. I mean, you could have a hippie clone with, uh, you know, Jamaican curls, and you could have lots of different, I think, male clones. But you would, it would be a makeup challenge, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who knows what we'll see. Uh, I also think it would be nice to see, uh, uh, if there were a new group of clones, a different ethnicity. Yes, I think we were hoping for that one before they'd introduced the caster clones. It's like, if we see a different group of clones, let's let's have a really different group of clones. Right. right. Maybe, you know, Brazilian, uh, you know, sort of brown, you know, Brazil's a very, very diverse culture. And that would be interesting to go to Brazil and see what was going on there. So could happen. Could happen. You could also go the other way and have someone who might be, you know, the clones might be all eight years old, 
you know, basically children and who are being raised somewhere in Brazil. And that really creates some interesting ethical problems. I mean, do you take them away from their home? And what then what do you do with them? You know, that would be interesting. I can't actually wait for the fourth season to begin. I, I hopefully, hopefully they won't contradict anything. <laughs> <laughs> won't be long to find out now. Yes. Yeah, that's always the, the uh, what is it? What's the word? That's always the um, difficult thing about trying to write something while a TV show is still airing. It's like, oh, please don't change anything and make what I wrote completely inaccurate. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know if you ever remember the uh, the final, it was an old show called The Saint Elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And the very final episode, the whole show t- turned out to be a kind of dream in an autistic kid's mind. And I hope that's not the ending. <laughs> it would be a, a surprise for sure if the show yes, ended yes. that way. Yes. It would be kind of like a lost into that way. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I'm sure it'll be interesting tonight. One of the things I like about the show also is that it has a really Canadian feel. I don't know if I, you know what I mean by that? I think so. Well, the violence isn't as, is it doesn't seem to be as extreme, and Toronto is a very diverse city. Mm-hmm. It's, it just seems more diverse. So, my actually, the school I teach at, I'm in Birmingham, is considered the third most diverse school in the country, behind George Mason and UC Riverside, which probably surprises people because it's in Alabama. But uh, I'm used to a lot of diversity. And I think Toronto, where this show is filmed, has a lot of the same kind of diversity. And you just kind of feel it. It has a different feel than, uh, I don't know, some of the other typical American shows. Mm-hmm. And I guess I guess Orphan Black on BBC is literally all over the world, right? As far as I know, it, yeah. It does air in a lot of countries, yeah. I mean... Yeah, I mean, probably any place that's with the former British Commonwealth would carry BBC, I would think. I, I don't actually know. Well, I know we've got listeners in Germany and Australia, at the very least. South Africa. South Africa, that's right. Mm-hmm. Finland, the, I'm pretty sure. One of the reasons I wrote this book is that I was at a conference in Vienna last year, and uh, they had a very big section uh, in the biggest bookstore downtown. They have an English section, big philosophy section. And I was talking to the manager and there were these, these volumes of like Plato uh, or Foucault and they were basically kind of getting dust on the top. But there were books like Homeland and Philosophy that the manager said, you know, we sell a couple copies of these every week. This is what people are buying. This is what people are interested in. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I mean, if you want people to read your stuff, maybe this is what you need to write uh, and get them where they're at uh, and not write another book on Plato. And, you know, this was in Vienna, uh, people and looking for an English language book about, you know, a philosophy book. So it's certainly better to have lots of people read what you write than maybe write an article that only three people ever write you know, in a philosophy journal, which can happen. So you have a whole chapter in your book about why we, the audience, we we love Helena. And so I have to ask you, do you love Helena the best or do you have another clone favorite or like clone storyline that's your favorite? I do love Helena the best. She's kind of like chaotically good. Uh, <laughs> and um, I, I think she's kind of, especially in her love of children and her, her um, 
desire. She's very loyal, and she's also kind of a, a you know, a weapon that can be directed at enemies. So she's very admirable in a lot of way. And, you know, there aren't that many uh, female heroines to root for. So um, I think we all are looking forward to seeing what happens to Alina. But, yeah, yes, Alina is my favorite character. Mine too. And, and I think, you know, something, something's going on in, the, in general culture, you know, Elizabeth Salander and the Hunger Games. I mean, people are sort of hungering for strong female characters. And uh, that's fine. And revenge. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, before we wrap up, uh, was there anything else that you wanted to uh, t- tell people about the book in particular? I think it's a fun read. It's it's uh, it's it's cheap, and uh, it'll help you understand the show better. I think. I mean, one one of the things we haven't talked about was the eugenics that occurred, and uh, I knew pretty much what had happened in America, but I didn't know the stuff that happened in Canada. And I'm surprised people. about that too. And a lot of people think, you know, the eugenics just happened with Germany and the Nazis, and it's really not true. I mean, we we kind of started it here in America, and we did some pretty bad things, and we were pretty racist. And some of the political language that's coming down right now in terms of our political candidates is pretty close to some of the stuff that happens. So it's kind of a cautionary tale. And I do think that people who don't know about history, you know, maybe condemned to repeat it, as Santiana said. So um, there, there's some interesting stuff in there. And to his credit, I mean, the show gets it all pretty much right. And we all should know more about that kind of stuff. Especially since some of it happened a lot more recently than you'd think. Really? I mean, the fact that uh, it recently just stopped in Sweden and that they're just getting around in North Carolina to revealing how many uh, black women on welfare were sterilized against their will without mm-hmm. knowing it. This is extraordinary. But these stories kind of get buried. And uh, it's kind of like uh, a lot of people know about the Tuskegee syphilis study, which occurred you know, here in Alabama over 40 years. But those people got syphilis in the natural way by having sex, unprotected sex. But in Guatemala in the 40s, we actually injected people in prisons and prostitutes with syphilis. And that was really bad. We have done some really bad things. You know, you think that the show shows some bad things, but in reality, it's even worse sometimes. That's an interesting way to end it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, Dr. Pence's book is called What We Talk About When We Talk About Clone Club, Bioethics and Philosophy in Orphan Black. If you're really interested in the science behind Orphan Black, this is a really good read for you. It's got a lot of good information in there. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Pence. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And thank you to Smart Pop Books for setting up this interview and for providing us with review copies of the book. If you'd like to learn more about the book, go to smartpopbooks.com. We will also have a link to the website in our show notes, which are available at tatianaiseveryone.com slash 97. If you have comments or questions about anything we talked about today or about Orphan Black in general, you can leave a comment on those show notes, or you can send us an email at feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. You can also call and leave a voicemail at 972-514-7223. You can also record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us. You can find us on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. 
And in this episode, our review copies of What We Talk About When We Talk About Clone Club were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.